Hey everybody, John T. Meyer here, the host of the Lead More podcast. We just recorded episode five with Ashley Ballou Bonima. Ashley is the executive director and founder of a nonprofit organization called Breathe Bravely. In our conversation, we talked about her incredible story of being born with cystic fibrosis, growing up to become a professional singer, then starting a blog to really document that whole experience and that blog eventually becoming a nonprofit, which touches the lives of people across the world. It was an incredible conversation. Ashley shared some great thoughts about how leaders can use the unique gifts and talents of those around them and weave them together to create a really incredible tapestry. She had some great nuggets to share. So let's dive right in and listen to Ashley. All right, Ashley, welcome to the show. Good to see you. You too. Thank you. How you been? I've been doing well. I yeah. can't complain, you know, finding, finding my rhythm in life and taking each day as it comes. Awesome. That's great to hear. Well, I'm really excited to have you here. Uh, you're definitely a leader in my eyes and someone who has uh, boldly um, created and developed and, and, and you know, you've, I feel like you've taken your dreams and made them into reality, which is really, really inspiring. So let's unpack what that is. So you are the executive director of an organization called Breathe Bravely. You started it in 2015. That is correct. Okay. Yes. And give us a quick rundown of what Breathe Bravely does. Yeah, so we're a nonprofit organization that our mission is to give voice to cystic fibrosis. So it's a bit of an advocacy organization, but coupling, you know, the the art of singing to yeah. really combat the effects of cystic fibrosis. Yeah, and so to make that a personal story for you, you have cystic fibrosis. Tell us what that means for you. Yeah, I do have CF. I was diagnosed at a month old. So CF is a genetic disease. Both parents have to be a carrier in order to have a child with CF. And it's sort of a lottery ticket kind of weird combination thing, right? You don't know until... Yeah, you know, now now it's a newborn screening from, from birth. And so... The diagnosis happens a lot earlier these days than it did, you know, 30 some years ago. Yep. And you really wouldn't have any signs of CF until, you know, maybe a few months went by, okay. a few years went by, and they would call it failure to thrive. So CF causes the body to produce this thick, sticky mucus, yeah. which clogs, you know, passages between organs, um, but primarily affects the respiratory system and pancreas. So my pancreas doesn't release the enzymes to digest and break down food and absorb okay. nutrients. Yeah. So, you know, you, you can eat all you want, um, <laughs> but if you don't have the the ability to really digest it or absorb that nutrients, it will just literally just run right through you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's one one telltale sign of, you know, 30 years ago that this could be a complication of cystic fibrosis. Also, uh, there was a campaign years and years ago where they would have parents lick their babies oh. or kiss their babies. Interesting. Uh, because CF is is due to a chloride imbalance within the cells, we sweat excess salt. Yeah. So I there's that. this like thin layer of salt on our skin. So parents would kiss their babies at night. That was like the medical test. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was this huge campaign about, you know, kiss your baby because there was no genetic testing at sure. that time to find out if if your baby had CF. It tastes salty. Yep. And so, you know, and, and there are parents who, who talk about that, that they would kiss their, you know, babies goodnight at, or kiss their babies goodnight and, you know, feel this This would like be like saltiness. as recently as like the 80s? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Sure. The the gene for CF wasn't actually um, targeted, I guess you would say, uh, until 1989. Okay. So, yeah, it's, and it was one of the first um, genomes 
completed for for CF to find like where the mutation exactly lies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So talk about um, so you you are diagnosed at a month old, and you and your parents are sort of just learning as you go for most of your life, right? In terms of how to live with this, the treatment. I know we've come a long way, but what was it like for you growing up? Yeah, I actually had a brother with cystic fibrosis as well, and so he was about you know seven years older than I was. Mm -hmm. And so he actually was diagnosed just before I was born uh, because he had gone through this slew of complications, wouldn't gain weight. Um, You know, it was a failure to thrive. They had kind of gone through this litany of, you know, it's, it's allergies or it's asthma and kind of you know, sifted through all of these complications. Uh, but he he was generally a pretty sick child. Yeah. And so after that final diagnosis of him having CF, I came along um, and they just, they tested me right away, which is done by a, a sweat test. Yeah. So they literally measured the amount of salt and chloride within your sweat. And that's still used today to be kind of like the final marker of, okay. of CF. Um so yeah, my my childhood, you know, I always say most kids grow up in like a jungle gym, and, you know, <laughs> slides and swings. And my jungle gym literally was a, a hospital ward, a hmm. hospital room, uh, and not necessarily for myself, but my brother was was incredibly sick. Yeah, and so he would maybe spend a few weeks a year at home with us. Otherwise, here in Sioux Falls, he would, you know, have his kind of own little room. The nurses and doctors became truly our family. And I'd get done with school during the day. My mom would get off work and we would drive up to Sioux Falls and spend, you know, a few hours there and then drive home that night. And wow. then the next day we would start all over again. Wow. And he died when I was in sixth grade, I believe it was. Um, so, you know, most of my childhood. So truly, he's, in, uh, how old was he? He was 17. Okay. Yep. yep. So, you know, most of my life was kind of spent that way or like the, the thick of my childhood yeah. was, you know, that kind of just repetition and lifestyle. Yeah. So I can honestly tell you after he died, it was, it was a transition of, you know, feeling, feeling like your life is missing something because you've lost somebody. Absolutely. But also because you don't, you aren't bound by this schedule that's kind of dictated your yeah, life. Yeah. This routine has now changed. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so it was, it was hard growing up because we had the same disease yet he was so horrendously ill and, you know, suffered tremendous complications due to CF. And I was seemingly healthy, you know, and in hmm. part was because I was diagnosed from such a young age. Yeah, so, you know, I I could have the, the elements that helped me gain, you know, the best nutrients I possibly could. You know, it, how much nutrition really plays a role in yeah. your overall health. Sure. And, you know, they could combat things right from the beginning where, you know, in, in his case, they didn't know exactly what they were dealing with. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And so I know there's different forms, different kind of variations and severities of CF, but this is where your story gets really interesting. Part of why maybe you have been able to thrive is a, a passion of yours. And so let's talk about music. When did that start? Or you, were you, were you, as a young girl, did you always want to be a singer? Um, you know, I... I lend my my love for for music to my dad. Okay. Um, I remember from a very very young age, uh, he would flip houses when I was growing up. Okay, and I would tag along with him into projects when he had days off to go work on a house, or I you know didn't have a babysitter that day, and we would set up a little TV, and <laughs> um, you know he had recorded a bunch of stuff. 
uh, on the be- on the days of the you know VHS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would record MTV and just hours and hours of MTV music videos. No way. And so he would set up this tiny little TV and just like hit play, and I would and like watch it all day. And you know, this is you know I was three, four, five years old, and in the car we would you know have long road trips. At that time, uh, we were doctoring in Iowa City. Okay. And in Omaha. Oh, okay. So because there was no safe Yeah, and care you grew up in Northwest here. Iowa, yeah, so that's a little bit yeah. of a drive. And so there was just hours and hours and hours of 80s music, just <laughs> back and forth. I was going to say, just particular song you yes, memorized I, you at know, a young age. I can or... tell you, this is, everybody's going to cringe when I say this, but We Built This City yeah. <laughs> is just like set deep within my soul. <laughs> and it's because, you know, like that, that was like my anthem sure. <laughs> for, for those long car rides. And, you know, just 80s music in general, really. Yeah. MTV was my babysitter. That was my, like, cartoons growing up was, was MTV. Sure. So just, you know, that, that music in and of itself just really being integrated early into my life. And so I just always remember, you know, going in my bedroom growing up and, like, turning on the radio or, you know, making my own mixtapes back in the oh, yeah. day when you had the oh, cassettes yeah. and you would listen to the radio and hit record quick and try and make your own cassette. And then you gave one to Mark, your husband, right? At a young age. The, the burned CD. Okay. That, yeah. that was really the the next level of that. I still have that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So music has always been an integral part of my life and something that I just really loved to do. And so when I went on to college to pursue, p- pursue, you know, a voice and study music, it wasn't necessarily that I had a great plan that I want to be a singer and this is what I want to do. It was more this deep sense of I have to do it. Interesting. And the the question that I dreaded have most. Have to be like an obligation or like a passion or what was, what was that feeling from? That there was this deep sense that I had to do it to survive. Interesting. And I remember being an undergrad and, you know, you're getting the, the persistent questions from everybody and your professors and and instructors and your parents as well, that you're getting a music degree. Yeah, what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with it? Like, what's your plan? And I remember having this just like deep sense of like, I can't explain to you like why I need to do this. Sure. I just know I need to do it. Yeah. And still to this day, I'm like, oh my gosh, how do they let you do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Who is crazy enough to let you say like, okay. Well, this wasn't just a hobby. I mean, you got an undergrad, you have a master's in vocal performance, right? Yeah, and I remember when you do your undergrad and when you do a master's degree, you have to do a final performance, right? You have to do a final recital. And I remember feeling such a panic when I did my final recital, thinking like, my life is over. Like I... (laughs) I, I may never do you this again. You reach the finish line in yes. some ways. What happens and it was this like just feeling of desperation and thinking if I don't keep doing this, I'm not going to survive. And whether that was, I probably was not a well thought, sure. you know, 21 year old at that time that really understood what that was stemming from and why I really needed to sing. Hmm. And so, yeah, I worked for a few years and then, you know, kept singing um, was doing some teaching and just really felt like I needed to get a master's degree. And so it was really during that time I really understood the role that music and singing really played in not only my mental and emotional life, but also my physical life. Yes, yeah, so that's what I wanted to ask you next. So 
um, the, you know, I don't know if the irony is the right word or like the, you know, this, this idea that you have a, a lung, a disease that affects the lungs and, and singing, if anyone who is a singer knows, requires a lot of lung functionality. And so at what point in that journey did the doctors know this was helping you, this, this constant repetition and work of the lungs, or was it sort of an accidental, hey, that really worked out well? I, I think maybe they've always been incredibly supportive of what I've wanted to do. And I've had a really wonderful care team that has really advocated for me um, and never wanted to put limitations on like what I can or anybody with CF can do. Sure. But I think there was a level of like, she's crazy. Yeah. Right? Like, okay. And, and even myself, I understood that. And being like, I'm going to be a singer and I'm going to be a musician, but I can't breathe. Yeah. And I think that's why I worked so tremendously hard, you know, especially during my undergrad and going into my grad school years of trying to separate my life of having CF and being a musician. Just because I, I also never wanted to be measured based upon having CF. Sure. You know, I wanted somebody to be like, oh, you did that really well. Instead of, you did that really well for somebody who has yeah. CF. Asterisk, yeah. Yes. And so always wanting to be measured by the same same standards as my peers and be known for what I can do and yep. not in spite of a disease that I have no control over. Yeah. Um, but living that way was pretty destructive because uh, it, was, it was kind of at no... No cost that I would try and, and hide my life with CF or, you know, just how ruthless it really can be and unpredictable. And I do want to be that person as well. If I do get hired for a gig, if I do get hired to be a part of an ensemble or for a show, that I get really sick yeah. and I have to cancel. And so you become that person that doesn't want to get hired because they can't breathe, but also because you're unreliable because... You have a disease that you really have no control over. Yeah, and so I think it's just an interesting wrinkle, so I want to call that out. You, you mentioned it briefly there, but until, what, 2014, maybe only a small people of close family and friends knew that you even had CF. Yeah, you know, and I, I think maybe most people kind of knew that I that I had CF, but most people don't generally know what it is. What it is, sure. Um, they've heard of it. Uh, you know, it affects 30,000 people in the United States and okay. 70,000 people worldwide, so it it's out there. But Why such a high percentage of the 70 in the United States? There are over 1,800 mutations that cause cystic fibrosis. And one of the most common mutations is Delta F508, okay. which is primarily an Anglo-Saxon, ah, Northern European mutation. And so especially around here, uh, you know, where, where we live, yeah, yeah, there's, the Midwest, yep. there's, you know, a high density of Caucasian individuals that are, you know, Northern European. And so that's... They kind of take okay. up most of yeah. the most yeah. of the population of that. Most people have heard of it, but they don't know exactly the like general implications of it. Or if they've heard of it and they Google it, it doesn't look so great. Yeah. Right? It's, it's pretty, <laughs> don't Google anything. Pretty, yeah. pretty doom and gloom. Um, but my journey with CF just kept getting more and more complicated. Um, like, and you know, we had talked briefly about there are different severity levels yeah. of CF, and there's not necessarily a rhyme or reason of why it manifests differently in one person compared to another. Some some of it is just luck, hmm. and some of it is, you know, has to do with the type of mutation that you do have. Um, some of it has to do with, you know, what bacteria and funguses you've been exposed to and have made a home in your, in your lungs. Um, you know, some people suffer from more respiratory issues. Some people, you know, deal with more GI 
um, digestive issues. Some people deal with both. Wow. So it's just kind of, it, it's also what makes it really, really difficult to treat it. Yeah, a lot it's, of trial and error. Yeah, it's yeah. not a textbook disease that you're like, let's check these boxes sure. and, you know, everything will be great. And this is the progression that it follows. Yeah. Um, you know, so I had, I had been generally pretty healthy or able to just live the life I wanted to live despite CF and keep it in it, keeping it in a nice little closed box and container. But that was becoming more and more difficult, especially during my grad years. I started dealing with some severe hemoptysis, which is coughing up blood, okay. um, which is yeah, many, many individuals with CF suffer from that. Um, and a few years ago, I had a an embolization where they go in and have to kind of cauterize okay. some of the the vessels and stuff inside your lungs um, in fear that you're going to hemorrhage at some point. Mm. And so I was in grad school, was having chronic infections, which, you know, I would, I would do home IVs for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. I had become a master of <laughs> being able to, you know, put my like little med bomb is like I always call them, yeah. you know, and hide it in my clothes. Sure. And thankfully um, you married a, a nurse. I did marry a that nurse. Helps. That's very convenient. Yes. <laughs> um, so he, all of, all of my cares could be taken care of at home. And I also, from a very young age, was very adamant that CF was not going to run my life. Yeah. Um, again, for better, for worse, maybe I could probably have been a little bit more balanced in that approach. Sure. Um, you know, I think having that mentality of all or nothing lent itself so, to some debilitating denial. You know, in 2014, that spring, when, you know, I had countless people in my life say, we know what's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Intervention. You, yes, and, and somewhat like that. It, we, you can't hide this. Like, you can pretend that we don't know or that we can't see or that you're really faking us out really well, yeah. but we're not dumb. <laughs> we, so, so let's talk about that because before this was an, a nonprofit organization that's touched countless lives, this started as a blog. People started saying, hey, we know that you have this. And so I don't, I don't think I know this part of the story. What made you decide to sit down and write? Um, a friend of mine had, that, had a few friends had said those very things. Like, we know what's going on. We want to support you. We want to be there for you. And it was that kind of self, self-wrestling yeah. that it's like, if they're willing to put themselves out there like that, I know I can't run from this anymore. Mm -hmm. And so instead of trying to maybe like find a balance between the both, um, which is just maybe part of my personality, <laughs> sure. that instead of running away from it, I just turned and headed straight into it. Yeah. And thought, okay, if these people are willing to give that support, to really open themselves up to wanting to be a part of my life actively and be there, okay, this is how I can share my life with them and give them an insight of to what it's really like yeah. living with CF. And I, it was just meant truly for like friends and family yep. to give them a true insight into what my life looks like, what my thought process looks like, what it's like to live with a chronic disease that's progressive and fatal. And so it, it turned into something that I could have never imagined. Um, if you would have asked me five years ago, if this yeah. is what I thought would happen in my life, I, I would have given you a big no. Yeah. Um, and so that's where the power of the internet kind of took over, right? You start writing these blog posts, the, the blog posts eventually become a book. Tell, tell me a couple of the stories of, of people who reached out to you, people who also felt like they were heard and, and they found, you know, your voice. Tell me some of those stories. You well, know, I think the greatest, 
the greatest thing that I could ever get from any response from any individual who's, whether they've read one post or they've read the entire book or they still follow, is that they say, I, I feel heard, I feel understood, even though what I'm talking about is not a narrative of their story. Mm-hmm. And I think that was always one of my sole focuses when I wrote was this is not about me. This is a way in which to show everyone that we all go through the same obstacles. They may look differently. They may be called something different. But at the end of the day, the pain you feel is the same type of pain that I feel, the same type of sadness, the same type of heartache, the same type of joy. All of those emotions are similar between all of us. And I think at the end of the day, what we are searching for is that that very thing that connects us, that very thing that brings on a greater sense of empathy. And when you read somebody else's story, you feel validated in your own and the feelings that you have. So that's a great point. I think, uh, you know, great leaders lead with empathy and, and when they use vulnerability, then they do appear more human and they can connect. And, and I know you had letters and, and emails from people who felt, um, just really heard when you started writing, you know, your story, what, um, and so that was, we'll call it like a project, but then that project became an organization. So let's, let's t- tell me that story. When did that light bulb be like, there's, there's something here that we can go further. Yeah. And it was during, you know, kind of this like just airing of, of my life, uh, you know, having this feeling of, of just awe truly of the people who kind of came out of the woodwork that I had worked so hard to just you know, kind of block off from that area of my life and keep separate, um, which was really inspiring to me, truly, of being, being more vulnerable, being more open and allowing myself to just, just be and know that I don't have to be anybody for anybody. Sure. And that I don't have to hide anymore. I don't have to try and be something I'm not. And I, those are the things that I really can't change about myself. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was that fall that I went through some significant complications with CF and down a path very quickly that we didn't know if I would come back from. Yep. And things got real serious real quick. And it was during that time that it wasn't like, oh my gosh, my life could be over um, for, one, for one way. But it also, you know, I might have to pursue very quickly a lung transplant. Yep. And having those conversations was, were just devastating to me. And it wasn't because I hadn't thought about, you know, this scenario in my life. You know, it, it's a reality for everybody with CF. Sure. Especially, you know, adults right now. It's sooner or later you're going to be confronted with that scenario that you're going to have to make some hard choices. And, you know, nobody wants to go down that path. Yeah. But in my mind, you know, it was like planned out exactly. Like, okay, I still got time. I, you know, this is going to happen maybe, you know, at this point in my life. And to feel so utterly out of control and that my mind, you know, was working 200 miles an hour, but my body was completely failing. Um, You know, it's just, it's, it's hard to look in the mirror and see that person and feel like it's real. Yeah. But it wasn't necessarily going through all of that. That was most devastating to me. It was the idea that I may never sing again Mm -hmm. and thinking, Oh my gosh, if I can't sing, I can't live. Yeah. As like ridiculous yeah. and dramatic as that sounds. But thinking like, okay, I might be able to Or it's to, not a life worth living in your yeah, eyes, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Sure. You know, that's what really feeds my soul. That's what really makes me feel alive and reminds me that I'm alive. You know, and especially during my grad school days, um, I would, you know, 
where I was able to gauge the state of my lungs based upon how I could sing. And really understanding that singing was used as, as a kind of gauge or like a barometer yeah, yeah, in a yeah. sense. That it would be like, hey, yesterday I could sing those three measures and today I can only sing two. Like what's going on? Hmm. Is something That's brewing? Yeah. Is there, you know, an exacerbation kind of starting to rear its ugly head? And so, you know, I would call my my care team and be like, oh my gosh, I couldn't sing those measures today. Yeah. And I'm sure that they were like, oh my gosh, you're so crazy. Um, but quickly realizing like that level of self-awareness and understanding of my own respiratory system and what my breath was really able to do allowed us to really hit things sooner and take things you know, into account that maybe we couldn't until things had flared and exacerbated themselves to a point where we're just, you know, fighting incessantly from behind. So yeah. being able to catch things earlier, um, being able to treat them earlier, yeah. maybe give us a, a leg up on things. It's like, so your singing was like, you know, when, a, when an old grandpa will like say his his knee is acting up and it's going to rain. Yeah, you know? like yes, you exactly you're, right. You're so in tune with your body and your voice and your lungs. That's so fascinating. Yeah, and, and that's that's exactly right. I always say that it's like my body's very in tune with, with what's going on and what's happening with it. Um, so, yeah, I was going through this, you know, kind of significant speed bump in life and not knowing exactly where it would lead. Uh, thankfully, my life did not, you know, take that turn or I have to yep. go down that path at that moment. Um, you know, and it was thanks to, you know, uh, I would say a stubbornness on my own part, but also a really great care team that also wasn't willing to give up on me and, you know, fight for fight for every breath, literally. Yeah. And so I got to, I was on my, supposed to be doing my last semester of graduate school. And of course I was like, I'm not taking any time off. You know, this is something that I need to do and I, I have to do it. Yep. And, you know, I had some really great professors and a team of people at my, my grad program that were really supportive. And I fought tooth and nail to be able to finish that degree. And again, for that kind of degree finality, yeah. we, we have to do a degree recital and I remember getting up, it was like the last week of, of that semester of graduation and doing a program, going from 25% lung function to 50% lung function in, you know, five, six months. And, you know, it wasn't this accomplishment of like, yay, okay, now I have my master's in voice performance. Yay, wow, that was an accomplishment. It was an accomplishment of survival yeah. and really understanding that singing saved my life, you know, not only hmm. mentally and emotionally, but truly physically. Yeah. And I had garnered this strength within myself and understanding of, you know, backlogged for years and years and years of understanding why it exactly was that I needed to do this and the role it played in my life. And so I remember standing in a kitchen with a friend and being done with, with my recital and being done with graduation. And she said, now what? Mm. Yeah. And, That's great. you know, that, that kind of confrontational two words. Yeah, none of us want to answer that yes, question. Yeah. yeah, and especially you don't want to answer it because then you feel accountable. <laughs> you have to yeah. do those things. Good point. And I remember saying, you know, I want, I want to start a nonprofit in which we provide or, you know, fund individuals to take voice lessons. So individuals who have CF to have the same opportunity that I have. You know, and it, whether or not it changes their lung function, whether or not it changes their life drastically, what happens if we could impact their quality of life? Yeah. How will that be systemic? 
and how will that follow them? Not only for, you know, a, a length of time that they're in doing a program like this or lessons, but lifelong. It was like you recognized that you had obtained the superpower almost and you decided how do we, how do we give it to other people? Exactly. Hey everybody, John here. Just a quick break from the show. I want to remind you that you can listen to all the episodes of Lead More Podcast wherever you download and subscribe to your podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, wherever you do that. Or you can go to leadmorepodcast.com and find all the episodes. Thanks again so much for listening. Let's get right back to the show. So so Breathe Bravely is, is, is incorporated as a nonprofit. Um, and then you launch a program called Singspire. So tell us about that because this is pretty fascinating. Yeah, so we had a pilot program in 2016 and we actually officially launched in 2017. Okay. So I am surrounded by, you know, wonderful colleagues and brilliant teachers and instructors as well of voice. And, you know, a lot of them understand and know my life with CF, especially after those, yep. those few years of just really exposing my life with CF. And I have the great fortune of working with a lot of them. And some of them are my closest friends just mm-hmm. because you, that musical community and that musical family. And I remember sitting down with them and saying, hey, I have this idea, but I need your help. Because that at, at that time, um, it was my intention that individuals would be paired in person with people or with instructors. Sure. And so... In the CF world, yeah, insert this because yeah, this is important. Two, yeah. two individuals with CF are recommended not to share the same space because of the bugs that I harbor in my lungs. Uh, somebody else with CF may not have ever been introduced to those, and they may not be able to fight them off as much as I currently am, yeah. and vice versa. So, due to cross infection risks, we should not share the same space. Yeah. So therefore, I couldn't, I had all of this knowledge, I had all of this understanding of how singing felt in my body, in my lungs, and how it transformed my understanding and self-awareness, but I couldn't directly work with somebody else with CF to like share that knowledge. So I needed a middle person, and that's where, you know, these wonderful people come in, and, you know, I thought maybe when I introduced them to this this idea that they'd be like, what? You're crazy. Um, (laughs) But... Gratefully, they were like, yeah, that sounds great. That sounds awesome. Um, but then we quickly learned, um, and through you know other people's encouragement, that doing online lessons was going to serve us a lot better. Uh, we would allow us to reach a greater demographic of individuals. And you know, as the world kind of knows now, Zoom has no four-wall limitations. Yeah. So we currently have uh, five instructors Uh, teaching for us. And we are working with individuals during the session from five different countries. Wow. So it, again, it knows no, knows no country. It's a one-on-one Zoom call. And and you essentially not only solve the problem of two people with CF not being in the same room, but now you've expanded the reach of your nonprofit across the globe. Yeah. Yep, exactly. So break down the numbers of, you've been doing this for a while now in terms of programs, students, Tell us about that. Yeah. So when we started, you know, so it's, it's, we pair individuals with CF to professional and voice instructors for 10 weeks of private voice lessons via Zoom. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they're working on breath management skills, breath awareness, respiratory strength, and this is all done via the art of singing. <laughs> and so 
We are on our 11th session currently. Uh, we do about three sessions a year. When we started, uh, we've kind of continued to follow this model that we started with five students. And anybody who wanted to continue on past that first 10 weeks certainly could. But then we would always open up five more spots yeah. for anybody that wanted to come in. Yeah. And we, this session, um, due to the extenuating circumstances that surround all of us, yeah. Um, we opened up 11 spots. Cool. So we've roughly averaged about 20 students. Um, you know, ones that decide like, Hey, I've, I've gone through the program. I've, you know, gone through six sessions, you know, it's time for me to, to move on. Sure. Um, and those that want to continue on for, you know, their 11th session or their yep. ninth session. Um, we, this session have 31 students. Oh my gosh. So we, we increased pretty, pretty wow. rapidly in that sense. Um, but it's always been incredibly important to me to make sure that we have the instructors and the staffing that reflects the the uniqueness of this this community. Yeah. Uh, you know, CF as CF itself is a pretty isolating disease. Just because the people who understand you most, you can't come into contact with them. Yeah. You can't go out for coffee. Um, you can't you know share that same space. And so we've we've grown up essentially, you know, building this community virtually. And it, it truly can be pretty isolating, you know, and not having people understand exactly what that, what that means and what that's like. Yeah. And so having somebody across the screen every single week for those people that are not looking at you because you have CF, but are looking at you as an individual they want to help be better, feel better, and feel connected. And yeah. at the end of the day, realize that they're capable of anything and that they're not alone through any of this. That's what's so interesting now in our in our COVID world. It's like you guys were doing the the connect via Zoom across the world before we all started living on Zoom calls like we do today. So what have you learned from as a teacher and as I mean you're not a student, but you know, you you can empathize with the students. What have you learned about doing remote voice instruction? And how do you yeah. as a leader connect to someone across the screen? I know you have a student in like in Sweden, right? Yeah. I mean, how do yep. you teach? Through a Zoom call. You know, one thing I've learned, when, well, first of all, when we when we started, you know, doing this program virtually, you know, I went to my teachers and, and, and said, hey, we're thinking of doing voice lessons virtually in your via bedroom. screen. <laughs> yes, yes. And, you know, all of us have studios. We all teach in person. And yep. there's just something, John, you know, about singing with an instructor in person and yeah. being in a studio and making music. Yeah. And so we were completely eradicating that. That was not even possible due to latency and lag. Yeah, you think about, well, yeah, will the, will the sound okay? Will the, will the, yeah, the, the lag, all yeah. these things, yeah, of And, course. you know, just that feeling of disconnectedness. And, you know, I thought when I had introduced this or, you know, proposed it, that the teachers would run. And surprisingly, they were like, we'll figure it out. Cool. And which was really great um, to not be alone in that sense of trying to navigate this kind of new world and one that was really unfounded that nobody else had been really doing or doing well. Yeah. And so kind of pioneering this, this area of virtual lessons and it being completely different than what it is like in person. Yep. And being, and that's okay. And that's totally okay. And, and I love leaders who, who don't ask why the idea won't work. You ask like why it will work and why that'll be great. And I think we really had to pursue the idea that we were doing something different, 
but what would be the benefit that we would be able to get doing it this way versus even if we were in person? And I think that is something really great that all of the instructors, including myself, have really leaned into, that we can mourn what what cannot be and bring all of that negativity into a project or into a passion, but it's always going to be dictated by that negativity and what cannot be. Hmm. So instead of pulling that in, just completely cutting away from it and saying, what can this be? And letting it be what it is supposed to be. And also realizing it's an organic process. It's always going to be changing. We're going to be becoming better. We're going to learn new things. And in this scenario, every student is so different. And going in, realizing that our mission wasn't to create musical prodigies and that they should be able to sing, you know, a Puccini aria by the end, (laughs) but it was about the art of making music and what that can do for you. At the end of of a lesson, can they breathe better? Yeah. At the end of a lesson, do they understand that they own their breath instead of it owning them? Hmm. At the end of a program, do they feel like they have conquered the world just by singing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star? That's what it's about. At the end of the day, do they not feel alone? Simple as that. Mm. I yeah. think we can get caught up in those measurements of, of success and what we think success is supposed to look like. And I think that's what gets us all in trouble. And I think that's what gets us in trouble as leaders. Instead of realizing the gifts that the people that you are trying to empower have and just trying to infuse life into that. Mm. Because every, every person that you impact then is going to be so different. Mm. Yeah, that's so good. And, and, and as you said, you can't measure the qu- a quality of life improvement, you know, the, the trickle down, what that means, not only the individual, but their family, their, yeah, how ma- the people around them. I mean, that's a, yeah, I've seen the videos of people singing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star at the end and the smiles on their faces. It's incredible. And you didn't just stop at the lesson. You actually then took these students and again, in pre-COVID, before we did everything on Zoom, you combine them into a virtual choir. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, myself being a musician and understanding what it's like to sing in an ensemble, to stand next to somebody, feel them breathe. Hold their hand. Yeah, yeah. hold their hand, feel that energy from them and have your voice meld into theirs and marry itself to a unified sound. There's nothing like it. And it's you, you can't recreate it. And especially you can't recreate it digitally. And, you know, it's in those ensembles that I have garnered some of the greatest friendships, that they are my family. Mm -hmm. You know, the people that are teaching for this program, that's that's how I I met them. That's how we've worked together. And there's nothing more powerful than that community and that journey to create something bigger than yourself. And so, you know, we had this wonderful private lesson program in which individuals felt empowered. They connected with their instructor every single week. But I also was thinking, we have all of these individuals that love music. They also are bound by a diagnosis that they didn't have a choice in. And so what happens if we created a virtual choir and brought all of those voices together for all of them to really understand that community, to feel more connected, to feel more empowered by by each other? Yeah. And we created something greater than ourselves. In a sense, you know, in real life, we would never be able to come together due to cross-infection yep. risks. Yep. So it, in a way, was always a way to kind of like stick it to CF. <laughs> like, you can't, you can't say we can't do this. Yeah. We'll find a way that we can. 
And again, you know, we, we had our first project um, debut a year ago. So 2019. Yep. And we're currently just started our third project now. And it was something so tremendous to watch evolve, especially that that first. That first one was a piece um, commissioned or you wrote it, right? Yeah. Yep. So I write all of the pieces uh, just because we are dealing with varying levels of musicianship yep. uh, within our program. And so I, I wanted to make sure that the music was pertinent to what we were enduring and going through and spoke to who we were individually, but collectively as yeah, well. That's cool. And that it was accessible by everyone. So yeah, I've, I've written every single piece thus far and you know, to see it really come to life with their uniqueness and their individual voices is is unparalleled to anything that I've ever experienced. It's just your voice. Yeah. There is no place to hide. There's no place to run. It has to be you. But it's through those imperfections and those that vulnerability that creates the most living, breathing music. Hmm. All right. So I'm going to transition. You're one of probably the most, um, I feel like, selfless humble leaders I know. It's 2020, you're in your third project. What do you, dream big, what do you want this to look like in 2025, five years from now? I always say I lead this organization based upon the needs that I see reflected in the community that I'm trying to serve. So I, regardless if it's tomorrow or it's five years from now, I want to meet the needs of inspiring our community that they are capable to do anything. And to utilize the art of singing in a way that gives them a voice they didn't know that they had. So if there's anything that I can hope for, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, um, two years from now, is that the voices of the people that feel silenced within our community, that feel isolated, that feel alone, that they will find the art of singing. They will find our program. They will find a community within us because it's that ripple effect. Mm -hmm. If we are able to inspire their voice, to have them understand and realize that they are capable of doing anything and you don't have to be a singer to be able to use your voice. And we just learn that our, our voices hold a unique beauty all their own and they don't need to be compared to somebody's who who has 100% lung function, who has 20% lung function. It's not the amount of air that fills your lungs. It's what you do with that air that counts. That's great. Um, Ashley, what do you want your legacy to be? I think legacy is is a living thing. So if I can infuse a kindness into people's life and an empowerment that when they look in the mirror, that they see truly who they are and who they can become – and that it is wholly good and they have the the power and the ability to pass that along, that's legacy enough. That's great. All right, I got a couple of rapid fire ones for oh you. Uh, what's the hardest part of starting a nonprofit? Believing in yourself. Okay. Trusting that this isn't about you, but it's about a purpose that you want to serve and an, a need that you want to fulfill. And that's a good answer because I, I feel like if anyone's listening who wants to do that, the the natural reaction is incorporating or finding an attorney or raising money. or I mean, those are challenges, but you've tackled those and are tackling them. So it's just believing in yourself. Yeah, believing and trusting. And I think I've constantly looked at this organization and its leadership in a way 
that I surround myself with people who are better than I am and who are multi-talented, who are brilliant, but are completely out of my realm (laughs) in terms of knowledge and experience. And you surround yourself with great people and it will undoubtedly run itself. And you have to be really thoughtful about empowering those people's gifts as well, because people want to, people want to be a part of something. They want to help. They, they inherently want to do good. And so if you recognize their abilities, their gifts, their unique, their unique thread that they can weave through your organization, then that creates the greatest tapestry when all of that is, is woven together. That's an awesome sign of a good leader. Um, what did you want to be when you grew up? When you grew up? I, I have an idea maybe, but I don't know if it's singer or not. Uh, no, it wasn't. <laughs> um, I don't know. It depends if you're talking about like my seven-year-old self. Sure. Or when I was a seven-year-old, I wanted to be like a show dog person. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that would like, you know, run around the ring. Like and best like Best in show. Best in show. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> like, Yes, you do. You have, have two it. dogs now. I do have two dogs now. Have you uh, shown them ever? I have not. Okay. Um, they are not of the standard of probably <laughs> show dogs. Okay. So. Uh, you were just talking about that kind of unique thread that everyone brings. The question we ask at Lemonly is what's your superpower? What's the one thing you do better than everyone else? Because it makes know. you brag, which I know is hard for us. I don't know if it would ever mean that I am better, but maybe more aware of that area of my ability. And that is just to listen. Okay, nice. Um, And then lastly, the one thing I always want to show in... Um, in the, on this show is how many people impact us to get to, you know, where we are and, and the, the mentors, the advisors, the other leaders. So who, who inspires you and who have been the most um, influential people in your life? I know I can probably write a book on that in and yeah. of itself. And I think the great thing about anybody who feels that they're not a leader, they just simply need to look in the mirror <laughs> and see the fingerprints that are left on them. Every single person that we come into contact with, every single person that we feel has influenced our life for better, for worse, has shaped us into the leader or person we are today. And I honestly can tell you when I look in the mirror or somebody's, you know, a memory flashes into my mind, I think about how that person has truly, like like a piece of clay, shaped me into who I am today, whether that, you know, is a high school vocal teacher, whether that is you know, a a college voice teacher, whether that is, you know, a professor of English, um, whether that is somebody that I just met through the CF community who there was no necessarily rhyme or reason why we ever crossed paths. Um, But I think everybody in your life has something to offer you. But I think that can also be a very dangerous thing when you feel like everybody is there for your consumption. (laughs) And so what I always try and focus on is not what I'm getting from that relationship, not what I am gaining, but how I can reflect that goodness back out into the world that's been given to me. I think that's a great place to end. So Ashley, thanks for coming. Thank you, John. Take care. And that was episode five of the Lead More podcast. Thank you for listening. And if you can, please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review that helps get the word out about the show and let other people know that they should listen. And also, put on your calendar. We drop new episodes every Thursday night of the show. So stay tuned for the next episode coming soon.